Greetings, and welcome to Blue Stocking, the podcast for people who love to learn, but don't always have time to study. I'm your host, Rory Roberts, and today we're delving into the fascinating world of Victorian libraries. I do just want to issue a quick apology for not releasing an episode in August. It was a crazy month, to say the least. I am also have been having some computer issues, so it takes me longer to record and upload a an episode than it should. Um, hopefully I'll be able to get that fixed quickly and uh, have an easier time recording and uploading episodes. But in the meantime, I came across a website that I had forgotten about, but which I absolutely love, which is jstor.org. And I've got a couple of stories about Victorian libraries to share with you. Starting with one about the reading rooms designed to protect women from library loafers. In the late 1800s, American women began to move more freely in public. In response, public libraries created sex-segregated reading rooms intended to keep women in their proper place. Erin Blakemore writes, During the second half of the 19th century, women began to move more freely in public. It was a new world, and one that didn't quite know what to do with women. Abigail A. Van Slick tackles one unexpected facet of that public revolution, the public library which once welcomed women with sex-segregated reading rooms. Public libraries may seem like low-key places today, but back then they were perceived as being fraught with danger. Libraries had traditionally been private male spaces, and when they first opened to women, critics wondered whether it was decent for women to openly traverse stacks and climb stairs, accessing potentially immoral books and running into strangers along the way. Of particular concern were library loafers, unredeemable working-class men whose loitering thwarted the nodal purposes of the public library, writes Van Slick. These supposed loafers were thought to frequent the library to read betting notices in newspapers and to leer at women. And so, women's reading rooms, a kind of extension of the separate sphere philosophy of the age, were born. At one point, the rooms were common in public libraries throughout the United States, and examples could be found in cities including Boston, San Diego, and Seattle. Though some of these spaces were actual rooms, most were segregated alcoves or spaces within the library that were designed as women's only. Soft design elements like paintings and frescoes emphasized femininity, while domestic details like carpets and parlor-like upholstery evoked women's home sphere. Tellingly, these spaces broadcast women's supposed inferiority in reading skill, taste, and desire. Often they were placed in basements or next to children's rooms or administrative offices. They contained fewer, less functional tables than men's spaces, and were filled with reading material that reflected stereotypes about their intellect and proper roles. While the general reading rooms provided serious readers with large rectangular tables that encouraged extended solitary examination of hefty tomes, writes Van Slick, ladies' reading rooms typically provided tables that suggested a very different interaction with books. Some spaces, she notes, were not even designed for reading. 
They were intended instead for letter writing. These special spaces were designed to keep prying loafers out, but they were often visible from other parts of the library and even resembled stages or shadow boxes. The male gaze, appropriately directed, writes Van Slick, both maintained social order by policing women's behavior and encouraged men to be more moral by exposing them to the spectacle of well-behaved women. As librarianship became more professional, however, librarians became more involved in design. Bound to get as many books in the hands of as many patrons as possible, librarians began welcoming working-class readers, even the ones they once feared as loafers. And a side note here, there is a fascinating uh, episode of The Dollop about women dealing with the male gaze in the Victorian era um, and using hat pins as a mode of self-defense. I will try to find that and include that link in the show notes for you. Another article about Victorian libraries from the JSTOR website is actually about how dangerous it could be working as a Victorian librarian. Livia Gershon writes, Quick, think of a job that's hard on your health. Uh, Side note, teaching. Librarian Rosalie McReynolds writes that in the late 19th century, a common response might have been librarian. As the nation urbanized in the second half of the century, McReynolds writes upper and middle class men increasingly moved to commercial work. Their wives, meanwhile, remained in households that were becoming sites of consumption rather than production. Ready-made goods and servants turned female idleness into a status symbol. Ironically, while a man was judged positively for hard work, he gained further status in accordance with the leisure enjoyed by his womenfolk, McReynolds writes. In this context, even physical inability to work due to nervous disorders or amorphous female complaints became glamorous. As McReynolds puts it, Nerves became synonymous with the, t- with the pampered woman, and the popular image of her became that of the exhausted beauty prostrate on her chaste lounge. But even among the privileged classes, not all women had the option to stay idle. By 1860, demographic shifts had created a serious gender imbalance in the population of the Northeast, particularly in urban areas. That meant some women didn't get married and many among that group didn't have family money to last them a lifetime. For many women in this situation, becoming a librarian seemed like an obvious choice. Library administrators were enthusiastic about the cheap, educated workforce they could find among graduates of women's colleges, and it was a ladylike form of paid employment involving little physical strain. Yet. To many Victorians, it still seemed to be too much for delicate women. As women were increasingly entering the profession in 1886, Melville Dewey, of Dewey Decimal System fame, predicted that female librarians would have trouble doing the job because of poor health. And in fact, a number of female librarians did experience breakdowns, requesting long leaves of absence to recover. In 1900, the Brooklyn Public Library Association proposed to build a seaside rest home for those who had broken down in library service, McReynolds writes. Side note, 
If anyone wants to make a seaside rest home for teachers, I'm totally in, even though I'm not horribly fond of the ocean. Anyway, back to the story. One speaker at the American Library Association's 1910 conference claimed he knew 50 librarians who had become incapacitated by the work, including some who died before their time. We shouldn't jump to the conclusion that these breakdowns weren't real, McReynolds writes. Some social historians believe Victorian women reacted physically to their narrowly defined social roles in ways that manifested as physical and emotional breakdowns. McReynolds notes that nervous disorders never struck more than a small minority of librarians. Nonetheless, the general impression of women's capacities affected women's opportunities as at the nation's libraries. The belief that long hours or excessive intellectual stimulation could make women sick presumably led some women to avoid seeking additional responsibilities. In other cases, supervisors, both male and female, held them back for the sake of their health. By the 1920s, nervous disorders were waning as psychiatrists developed more specific diagnoses. Meanwhile. The dangers of library work disappeared from public discussion as increasing numbers of middle-class women proved their competence. Now, a side note here, and a segue into my next article, is that some of the books in the library might have actually been poisonous. In the Victorian age, Arsenic was used in green dye, and that green dye could be found in everything from wallpaper to toys to clothes to books. So, indeed, (laughs) those libraries could be dangerous. This final article is titled Some Books Can Kill by Alison Meyer. The Smithsonian's Coleman Library holds a gorgeous 1602 edition of Ulysse Aldrovandi's De Animalubis Insectis, a pioneering book on insects illustrated with detailed woodcuts. This volume, however, has a deadly secret. Its cover, a collage of recycled medieval vellum and pigskin, is painted green, and that green paint was made with arsenic. Alexandra K. Newman, library technician, shared this discovery on the Smithsonian Library's blog, noting that rather than being a bibliographic murder attempt or a deadly security system, the toxicity of the binding is actually an unintended consequence of an effort to keep this book affordable for 17th century buyers. And it's not unique. The University of Southern Denmark's library recently identified three books from the 16th and 17th centuries with concentrations of arsenic on their covers. A plausible explanation for the application, possibly in the 19th century, of Paris green on old books could be to protect them against insects and vermin. Right research librarian Jacob Povohak and associate professor in physics Kara Lund Rasmussen in an article for The Conversation. Throughout the 19th century, in fact, having green as your favorite color could be fatal. Arsenic-based greens experienced a surge of popularity in the Victorian age. Particularly popular was Shields Green, named for its 18th century inventor, Carl Carl Wilhelm Scheele. It gave enticingly verdant hues to anything from wallpaper to children's toys. Also popular was Paris Green, 
blended with lead arsenate to create lush green colors on Impressionist canvases. From around 1800, manufacturers began to make use of a number of arsenical compounds, particularly as coloring agents, writes historian P.W. Bartrip in the English Historical Review. Cheap to produce, chemically stable, and capable of yielding vivid hues, the most popular of these was Shields Green, sometimes known as Emerald Green or Copper Arsenite. Bartrip adds that it was found in literally dozens of goods in everyday use, including books. Any manufactured item colored green was as likely as not to have been dyed with arsenic, and in the mid-19th century, shades of green were the height of fashion, especially for home furnishings and women's clothing. The noxious nature of these greens was not unknown, as arsenic had long been employed as poison. Indeed, it was purposefully used in some goods in order to ward off infestation. In 1873, Scientific American bravely opened numerous letters from readers who included samples of fabrics and wallpapers. Many were revealed to include arsenic, and the publication advised, toy books with green covers are always to be suspected, and in fact, the only absolutely safe thing to do is to avoid green colors altogether. A consumer activist from Michigan named Robert C. Kedsey deliberately made a poisonous book in order to raise awareness of arsenic in the home. Since Paris green was a popular color in widespread use, Kedsey, brought, Kedsey bought 80 rolls of the arsenic-impregnated wallpaper in 1874, bound them into books, and sent copies to 100 libraries in the state of Michigan, states historian Jan Jennings in the Winter Third Portfolio. The volume, Shadows from the Walls of Death, contained eight pages of wallpaper with the deadly pigment. Rare copies survive, with one at the University of Michigan Library appointed their most dangerous book. While these lethal greens were eventually phased out as pigments, into the mid-20th century they were used as pesticides and hazards remained for workers in their factories. Chronic arsenical poisoning is a condition to which most of the men are exposed. Acute pains in the abdomen and nausea and intense thirst are first noticed, cites a 1917 monthly review of the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is followed later by gastritis, enteritis, jaundice, and diarrhea, followed by constipation. Nails drop off, large ulcers develop, and the skin appears somewhat mummified. In intense cases, death sometimes results. Understandably, the Smithsonian's Coleman Library has its copy under wraps for the foreseeable future. If you enjoyed the articles in today's episode, I have included included links to each of them in the show notes, as well as some further reading. If those have piqued your interest, you can go even more in depth. Um, I've also included a link to a online documentary that can be found on YouTube about hidden killers in the Victorian home, which is presented by Dr. Susanna Lipscomb. I've also included a link to her website as well. It's a really fascinating documentary about an hour long that covers all kinds of things that were a part of the Victorian home and the Victorian daily life that were not as safe as not as safe as houses, as they would say. I've also included a link to the dollop episode, Mashers and Hatpins, 
which if you are interested in women defending themselves from leering men in the Victorian age, this is a good way to learn about it. Although please be warned that it can get crass at times, although that's one of my favorite parts. It's hilarious, just be warned. Thank you so much for listening. If you loved it, tell a friend. If you hated it, tell an enemy. And please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. That will help me reach more listeners. Thank you so much.